the best idea doesn't always win. It's how you execute on it. I remember going into the accelerator and there was about, I can't recall how many, but there was lots of women pitching their business ideas and you genuinely couldn't call it. They were all brilliant ideas. One after the other, I was like, oh, wow, I'd invest in that. That's amazing. You know, they're going to change the world. And I remember in the accelerator that they told us, I can't remember what the exact stat was, but it was something like 80% of us was go- were going to fail. And I was like, oh, not this group, because we all have great ideas. You know? <laughs> and I was so naive to actually great ideas aren't the key to success. It's how you execute. It's the people you surround yourself with. It's your frame of mind, your resilience, your persistence. In many respects, it's back to the people. I'm John Fitzgerald, host of The Cord Podcast. I'm curious about the changing world of work. I want to have conversations that will help us all become future ready. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the CORD podcast. Today, our topic is a combination of two. It's taking career risks and reimagining performance management. And to speak about that, I'm delighted to be joined by Ashling Tellard, and Ashling is a tech entrepreneur and founder of our Tandem, which provides a continuous performance management platform that drives people development through personalized feedback, coaching and goal setting. And recently, Ashling's business, our Tandem, was acquired by Decom, which provides a cloud based solution that unifies all compensation and rewards processes on a single platform. So congratulations on that, Ashling, and you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. I'm delighted to be here. So, Ashling, because of my background in career coaching and interest in people's career journeys, I think your journey is a fascinating one. And I always ask people at the start of the podcast to tell us a little bit about your younger formative years, influences and the values you believed when you were growing up. Yeah, straight in the deep end. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the countryside in County Meath, not far from Ferry House Racecourse. I mean, it was pretty simple country style lifestyle, to be honest. Nothing terribly extraordinary there, you know, climbing trees and and having fun with, with my sisters. Um, but I think probably the most standout moment for me that may have shaped and influenced my thinking was my dad, who was a big presence all around. Um, he was an entrepreneur himself, actually. He was the first to bring colour TVs into Ireland and he grew really quickly. So he had loads of shops around Dublin and, you know, very well-known businessman at the time. But he unfortunately got a bit bored of the whole thing and took his eye off the ball and then lost the business. And so money was always very tight for us. And it was always attention, I would say, in the house because we were always at the brink of losing the house. And that would have been a very known thing. And my dad went into sales. So he still continued to work for himself, but he sold um, chemical solutions, which was basically kind of things just for pubs and restaurants and so on. And when he was... uh, selling if he had a bad week or a bad month he would sometimes take me out of school and he'd be like you're my lucky charm we'll just go around together and he would go in and sell and he used to have great success I don't know what it was but I think he changed his frame of mind and by putting things around him that made him feel happy and he could sell better once he was in the right frame of mind he could sell better so he would always get a couple of wins and they would do him for the week if not the month 
And we'd go home, he'd buy me a bar of chocolate and we'd go home in the car. He'd be singing Elvis songs at the top of his voice. Like the joy and elation he felt after a good sale was super because we knew we could pay the bills that month. And I think while people might look at it now and go, oh, my God, he took his kid out of school to (laughs) fuel his sales career. It probably sounds weird now. But at the time, it was a great lesson. It was a great lesson because one, I could feel the way he got himself ready for a sale, like he'd psych himself up, he would look his very best. He'd put himself in a positive frame of mind. So he knew that he couldn't keep going with the same negativity because sales is wearing, you know, if you get no after no after no, after a while that starts to hurt. So just by putting me in the car or changing his frame of mind, he could change the outcome. And I think that stayed with me, you know, when I faced rejection in my career or in my business, I think I used to deliberately do that. I would shift my frame of mind by putting something positive into my world that day. And that would change the shape of the day. So I kind of like that story because it is really one of the big things that influenced me, I think. That's really insightful. And I myself sold chemicals at one stage in my career into pubs and, (laughs) and restaurants. And I know what rejection is like. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm just actually penning a blog at the moment, rejection leads to redirection. And I think he was a very clever man in resetting his mindset. And obviously, you were his inspirational coach as a child <laughs> in the car to get him going again. <laughs> and, you know, that's super foundation for being a tech entrepreneur. <laughs> it's time to come. But before that, you built a successful career in HR and, you know, you were HR director in SAP in 02. And tell us a little bit about your rise through the ranks in HR. Yeah, yeah. I was very lucky because I had done a HR degree and I originally went into maybe more traditional industries, did HR for security firms and banks and traditional places like that. But I think I hit gold when I got to SAP because they had such a fresh take on HR. They were so progressive for their time. Now I'm going back to the 2000s, showing my age here, John, but um, but they were ahead of the curve for so many things in HR. They thought about people in such an empowering way. Like it was genuinely an empowering culture. If you came up with a good idea, nobody got in the way. And they were very into experimentation, you know, giving things a go. They weren't afraid of failure or risk. So they really went all in and it it really allowed me to do some cool stuff. So we were the first to bring flexible benefits into Ireland. We were the first to introduce teleworking, working from home remotely. We were the first to do a lot of things in HR. And it was only when I came out of SAP that I realized how far ahead we were, that people were only, you know, seven years later, I was talking to people who were starting to think about doing these things, you know. Um, And we had done them really early on. And when they saw a good idea, they globalized it. You know, there was a lot of things we did in Ireland, initiatives, talent management initiatives and so on that they took globally. And it was very rewarding, I think, to work for a company who just let you free, I guess, let you free to do those things. I loved I love a good project. (laughs) I was just doing project after project after project. And it was superb. And I really loved SAP and I have such admiration for that company. But O2 tempted me away because, and it was maybe it's an ego thing, but they kept winning best company to work for and we couldn't win it. And I couldn't understand why we weren't winning it. I was like, what is going on? So I wanted to learn their secret sauce. I was like, why are they winning it? 
So I took a role there and as well as seven year rich, I'd been eight years at that point at SAP. So it was time to kind of, I always feel like you can only grow so much in one place, you know. So and SAP actually had a really great idea, which was talent shouldn't stay in the one place for too long, that you should actually change it. So it was a very proactive job rotation in SAP to make sure that you didn't get stale. So that mindset, I suppose, was drilled into me that, you know, you need to shake it up to, you know, to continue to grow. And O2 was fascinating because they didn't have a lot of the great practices that SAP had. In fact, they were years behind them in many ways. But they had this incredible focus on communication, engagement and recognition. They were the masters at it. I mean, we didn't just run awards shows. We invited Westlife to come to our awards shows to sing for the employees. Like it was over the top entirely. But it was just really fun and engaging. And there was this spirit of gung ho and everybody was so proud to be it, we call them blue blooders. You know, everyone was really proud to be an O2. And that was a fascinating journey. And I think I learned a lot there. The early days, there was a lot of fun. There was a lot of great practices around communication that I learned that SAP absolutely lacked. So I could see why these guys were winning and SAP wasn't. But then I moved off and did a global role, setting up a shared service for Europe. And that was a fascinating journey. And I had done that same journey for SAP because they had set up a shared service as well globally. And of course, being the volunteer, I put my hand up to go first, you know. So this time I set up the shared service and we had a really successful um, initiative there. We brought 100 jobs to Ireland to uh, grow the shared service team. And yeah, it, we used to have people coming from all over the world to come and check out our shared service because it was considered best in class. So really proud of that. But then my O2 in Ireland changed uh, CEOs and the new CEO asked me to go and be the HR director for Ireland specifically. So I came out of the global role and did the Irish role. And it was an interesting time because it was really deep into the recession. So we had lost quite a bit of our mojo and, um, you know, margins had dropped, profitability had dropped, everything. And naturally, morale dropped with it. You know, everybody was in deep recession. It was just a terrible time for Ireland all around. And we had this mission to return to profitable growth. And um, I remember there's this one story I'll tell you, and uh, then I'll stop talking. <laughs> but this great story where we were sitting around as in the board and the CEO turned around to all the leaders and he's like, OK, this is rock bottom, guys. We have to go up from here. Like, we're returning to profitable growth. How are we going to do it? And he was shooting ideas at the marketing director, shooting ideas at the find the CFO. You need to do this around the cost base, the technology guy. You need to, you know, make our technology more efficient, streamline, save cost. You know, marketing, you need to change your way. Sales, you need to change your way. So he had ideas for everybody, you know. Remember, he looked at me in HR and he didn't know what to tell me to do. You know, he just he was out of ideas. And then he kind of muttered something about headcount and, you know, restricting recruitment or something. And I remember sitting there going, is that all he thinks HR can do to help him return to profitable growth? Does he not see that we have a much bigger role? Because people run all these areas. People run marketing, they run tech, they run finance. So surely HR is a bigger role to play than just managing the headcount process. And so I came back in with a plan of a high performance organization and it was built a lot around performance management, you know, uh, feedback and 
continuous check-ins with people and, you know, focus on ambitious goals. And so there was an awful lot of elements of performance management in the plan and we implemented it and it was huge and hugely successful for O2 and we did return to profitable growth. And um, I remember I was going on maternity leave and the CEO in, in his speech was saying, you know, when I set out on this journey, to return to profitable growth, I don't think any of us thought that HR could play a role in that. But in the end, it played the biggest role in changing our mindsets, the culture, the way we did things, and actually driving people in the organization to do the right things. And it was really a point of pride, I think, at that moment to go, HR can change cultures, we can shape cultures, and we can change the outcome of the business performance, not just the people. And I think that for me was a real proof point that we have such a big role to play in business. And sometimes we underplay that role for ourselves. Um, but there is such a huge opportunity to shape culture and to change the momentum of a business. And uh, yeah, so it was a fascinating journey to be on. Your next move, <laughs> which was into entrepreneurship. So tell me about that and what was going through your head and all of the scary stuff that comes with taking a leap from the corporate world into... Yeah. So I actually left... When 3 bought O2, I left O2 and I was on maternity leave, actually. And I wanted to go into consultancy. That was my big thing. I thought I'd get a better work-life balance out of consultancy, which is for everybody thinking about that. That is a myth. You just swap bosses for clients, people. It's not... It doesn't change anything about your work-life balance. But we were doing a lot of work in the performance management space. It was a place I was passionate about. I'd done a research master's on the topic. I just really love the area of performance management. I think it really shapes your culture. And, you know, we would go in and change their performance management practices and then we train it out. And I remember sitting with Jim O'Brien, my co-founder, and we kind of knew as soon as we walked out the door, those practices wouldn't really sustain over time. We knew we'd be back in a year training them out again, for you know, reminding people that they should be giving feedback and they should be checking in. But the world had moved too fast, you know, and it was full of busy managers who just didn't have time. And um, it was Jim, actually, who came up with the idea for, well, what if we had a feedback app and we we made it a really normalized experience and people could give each other feedback on the go. And I just fell in love with the idea. I was like, that is absolutely what we need to do. But Jim was really busy in the consultancy with clients. So I said, well, look, let me look into it. I'll try and progress the idea. And that was sort of the beginnings of it. It was really organic. Yeah, leap, I suppose, into trying something new. And um, original idea was we would build a consultancy around this product. That didn't turn out to be the case. In the end, we ended up leaving the consultancy behind us and focusing on the technology. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge, the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonix.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. So what started out as a consultancy in performance management then moved in to become a tech startup. So describe that journey and what was required and what you faced. Yeah, so we recognized that we needed to split the consultancy away from the technology and partially because we needed money to grow the technology business and technology really eats money. 
So we needed investment and investors don't like to invest in consultancy. They like to invest in SaaS businesses. So it needed to be a pure technology play. And we also recognize that, you know, technology really shapes the way you can drive a culture. So it was the leading force, I guess, of shaping the culture, whereas consultancy, you can enable around it. Then it was a journey of at one point I had to make a decision which was the, you can no longer consult anymore because you won't have time. And I joined an accelerator in NDRC, which was a really interesting one because it was female founder led accelerator. So everybody was female in it, which was super interesting because I don't think I'd ever worked with so many women before because a lot of my experiences in HR, there's a lot of women in HR, but my peers were mostly men. So that was really new for me, being surrounded by all these driven, inspiring women. It was fantastic. And then it was a case of building up the business, finding the early clients, finding investment, I suppose, to give you that start that you need to go. And yeah, just taking it from there. So there was definitely a decision point where I walked away from the consultancy. And that was tough because I had to stop drawing salary. And that really fed my insecurities about money. I suppose all that stuff from the past comes up, doesn't it? That risk of, oh my God, will I have my family homeless because I'm not drawing a salary? So it was a tough decision to let that go and to just go all in. Because at some point you have to go all in with a tech business. You can't just do it on the side. It doesn't work. So yeah, that was a poor Christmas, John. <laughs> I had very miserable gifts that Christmas. I remember visiting your office around that time and you had gone all in and I was looking at a technology business and that was the advice you were giving to give up the consultancy. And and uh, I wasn't as brave as you, Ashling, in going all in. And it's a real, you know, to give up that fee that's coming in each month must be yeah. really, really tough. And uh you know, again, and going back to your father and the two of you on the road, and you definitely <laughs> got a great training and how to deal with all of this stuff of the fears that uh, that you don't have an income coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of insecurity around that. It's funny, like at that point, I, I was middle aged. It's funny that it doesn't leave you, isn't it? Those things stay with you somehow and are challenged throughout your life. <laughs> But you continued on and you built it up and, you know, any learning along the journey that you'd give to anybody who's going out on that journey that they're thinking about now? Yeah, well, you have to relearn everything. So everything you know is almost like you have to start again and relearn it. Even things like hiring. I hired hundreds of people in my career and they all seem to work out pretty well for the corporates. But in my own business, I hired people and it didn't work out. And I was like, what? Have I lost all my skill? Like, what is going on? But it's just things that work in certain environments don't work in others, you know? And I really, there's some very hard lessons learned that what works for big business doesn't work for startups. Startups are scrappy. You know, it's really hard work in the early days. You're doing the job of 50 people. You know, you have to very quickly learn marketing, finance, operations, customer technology. You know, you have to learn all these things that are so alien to you. So there's such a steep learning curve. And then you have to learn how to pitch for investment, how to get investment, how to manage investors, all of that side of the business, which is very, very different and does not a huge amount of diversity in that industry. So you're up against it, really, being a woman going into pitch. 
So it's funny, you're faced with all of these challenges that maybe corporates had 20 years ago. You know, people saying, well, you can't really do this because you're a woman. And wouldn't you have to be at home with the kids and all this sort of stuff? And you're like, oh, my God, we trained that out of corporate guys 20 years ago. You know, So life's very different in the startup world. And I think the biggest advice I can give anyone is not to expect success overnight you might have the best idea in the world but the best idea doesn't always win it's how you execute on it I remember going into the accelerator and there was about I can't recall how many but there was lots of women pitching their business ideas and you genuinely couldn't call it they were all brilliant ideas one after the other I was like oh wow I'd invest in that that's amazing you know they're going to change the world and I remember in the accelerator that they told us I can't remember what the exact stat was, but it was something like 80% of us was were going to fail. And I was like, oh, not this group, because we all have great ideas. You know? <laughs> and I was so naive to actually great ideas aren't the key to success. It's how you execute. It's the people you surround yourself with. It's your frame of mind, your resilience, your persistence. In many respects, it's back to the people to make it successful. It's still a people business, you know, in the end. I think that's my biggest learning is that everything is people business in the end. So, yeah, I think the advice would be get ready for arming yourself up with resilience, persistence, but just commit 100%. I think once you commit 100%, you know, the right supports will become available to you. And the message we get from... Everything that I'm seeing is you have to relearn everything today in the future of work. And when you look at the education system and look at how kids are being educated today. Yeah, that's a great question. I see my daughter come home and every week she has a test, a test of knowledge, you know, of French, of geography, of all the subjects. And she's like, I'm so sick of these tests. And I have to admit, I'm sick of her looking at her taking tests because all they're doing is testing knowledge. And actually, knowledge is so transient because the knowledge you learn, you have to relearn. You know, it's not relevant for the next day. I mean, so I feel like the skills around how you work with people, how you motivate people, how you overcome challenges and problems together would be far better skills to be investing in. And testing that element of people would serve them better for what is a very volatile world, you know. So I do feel like sometimes we put a a greater focus on knowledge than is needed, but we're not building the person enough. There's more subjects now. I can see that, you know, they tackle mental health in schools, which is great. And, you know, they get them to get comfortable with their feelings, which is great. So there's more and more coming into schools that you go, okay, that will serve them well for the future. But I would amp that up 100% because, you know, the skills I think you need for the future are much more about how you get yourself in the right frame of mind, how you overcome obstacles, how you persist through challenges, because you're going to meet them no matter what you do. So I would love to see a bigger focus on that side of developing people, how you work in teams, you know, these things I think would serve kids well. No, I totally concur with all of that. I'm thinking back to you in that accelerator program and you have this, you know, this passionate concept and idea to reimagine performance management. When you look now at what you've achieved over the last six years in what would be your legacy that you've left at this stage of the journey with our tandem? And what have you brought the world that is better in performance management? Actually, you don't ask the easy questions to me. <laughs> Asking me for my legacy. Um, I think, I mean, I'm really 
proud of the cultures that we've shaped with the technology. You know, sometimes we go into prospects and they feel like the culture is beyond them. It's almost like, oh, Ashling, we've got a terrible culture here. And it's almost like they've given up hope that they can influence it. And that's not the case. You can absolutely shape and influence culture. And it's not just technology. You know, we enable the technology with a lot of change management behind it. It's how you communicate. It's how you train people. It's how you bring in a new mindset with people. But seeing those cultures change, I think, is really inspiring. And I often meet people when I go back into client site or sometimes I meet them at conferences and they'll come up to me and they'll be like, you know, Tandem is in my uh, favorites, in my apps. And they're like, I've got this really cool feedback I carry around with me. And, you know, there's great stories, I think, from the people who experience the app, not not even the HR people. I, I love giving them the opportunity to grow their careers. And many of them have got big careers out of, you know, just picking a winner because that's the game in HR, isn't it? You pick one successful project and you get the promotion. And but actually the people who are using the technology and how it changed their perception of themselves and their self-awareness, because I think that's how growth starts. You know, you can't grow unless you're aware. You're aware of the strengths that you should amplify in yourself, or you're aware of those development needs that maybe you need to focus on to get to a certain level. But I love this concept that people are woken up to their strengths in particular, because you can work all day on your development needs and get nowhere. But if you have a strength that other people see a strength in you that you didn't know you had, you can really amplify that strength, which can do wonders for your careers. And there's been lots of stories of how people were given feedback of people saw leadership in them. They didn't see leadership in themselves and they got promoted. And so I think there's these moments that I get sometimes when people come up to me and they tell me those stories that I go, okay, if that's all I've done, then that's enough because they're really proud moments that you've actually made a difference to somebody's life. But on mass that you've made a difference to the culture, you know, a lot of the clients we work with, they are quite traditional. They wouldn't have had any feedback practices going at all before the introduction of Tandem. And we see now that people on average are in there in busy times twice a week, giving or receiving feedback or checking out their passport or, you know, doing various things in the platform. And you know that that culture has changed and you see the engagement scores rocket, you see trust scores rocket. And and that's the piece. I think people don't realize that feedback is a trigger to so many other things. You know, feedback isn't just great in its own isolation, but actually if you have great feedback practices, trust grows. And if trust grows, people are more likely to take risks together. So innovation grows. If innovation grows, then, you know, performance can grow with it. So it's a trigger for so many other things. And we see the... You know, I'm always at clients going, tell me if your engagement scores have changed. You know, tell me if you're seeing any differences within those metrics of trust or leadership. And we see them change as early on as three to six months. And that's something I think maybe is the legacy is that without ever having met these leaders in many cases, we've actually changed their world a little bit. So, yeah, that's something I'm always proud of. You know, we see it in sport, don't we? Performance feedback is so vital. And it's almost as if we don't carry the lessons from the sporting field into the working world. And maybe it was because a lot of people felt that they were on an individual journey and there's nobody I can trust and I've got to do it on my own way and go up this career ladder. And 
it really is when you surround yourself with other people who give you that great feedback. And as a coach, I've been in so many sessions with people who didn't realize their strengths. And all of that comes back to you because it is that lack of belief that they might have in themselves. And they look over at person X or Y and say, oh, my God, I could never be as good as they are. And it's all for the lack of that feedback. So give me examples then for anybody who doesn't know your software and what it does. Give me the short version, Ashley, <laughs> of what it does when it goes into organizations. Yeah. So our platform is really, it's an alternative to traditional performance management. I think in the past, performance management has been quite individualized, quite competitive by nature, and maybe not as focused on growth as it should be. So our platform is all is built around this concept of a passport, which is basically that you develop your own passport for your growth, for your development, for your career over time. And through that passport, it encourages you, nudges you to kind of go get some feedback for yourself, go check in with these people, you know, have your moments, track your goals, even your personal or your development goals, not just your business goals, but any type of goal, your well-being goals have it all in the one centralized place so that you can track your journey and take it with you. But also so that you have some objectivity around the whole performance conversation as well, because I think in enterprise, people often have new managers, there's many restructures, and you can show up and and have done all this really hard work for the year. And suddenly there's a new manager who knows nothing about you. So there's a little bit of, you know what, bring your track record with you so that you can bring that to your manager. And then your manager is encouraged also to bring their version of your track record too, because they're not going to be sat there going, well, this employee has all feedback on themselves. I'm going to get some objective feedback. But obviously those two sets of objective feedback reduce the biases that can occur. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges with HR. And it's getting even bigger now with proximity bias. Um, because the people who are working remotely more often are starting to be left behind in many workplaces. So having this objective evidence, I suppose, around your contribution um, is a great means of reducing bias and showing your worth and showing it to yourself more importantly than anybody else. So that's really it. I mean, it does all of the things that performance management platforms do, but it's really focused on growing the individual and you know, heightening their self-awareness. And it's so important that people take the time to do that for themselves. I'm finding that people are so busy that on their tasks and on their work that they forget about themselves on the journey. And as I say, we're living in this volatile world and, you know, we're just looking at the moment and the news and on the whole, you know, tech that's happening. And, you know, people are going to have to think about their passport and they're going to think about how they need to pitch themselves to either stay in a role or transition in a role. So um, a lot of what you do, obviously, I'm a big believer in. And uh, your next step, Ashling, where to next? <laughs> so now we're on this really exciting world with Become. And for me, Become, we are a compensation platform and we're a performance platform. And the two together, I think, is such a powerful combination because for a long time, compensation has done the same thing it's always done. And it suffered the same ills, I think, that performance used to have. You know, performance used to be an annual event. Now, for most people, performance is continuous feedback, continuous check-ins. It's an ongoing thing that happens through the flow of work. The compensation is still living in that old world that it only happens once a year. And 
let's face it, nobody gets terribly excited about a 3% salary review. So it doesn't do anything for us as businesses. There's an awful lot of money goes into compensation, into bonuses, salary, equity, and very little worth out of it. So it really is time to disrupt compensation. And I think with the benefit of the two coming together, it can really change the world of work. Because in the end, the two biggest things that shape your culture. Yes, you can run well-being surveys and engagement surveys and do all these other nice things that help influence your culture. But when people think about the workplace, they think about how they're managed and they think about how they're paid. They're the two big things that just matter to everybody. And they're the mandatory things. Everything else is a bit optional. You know, I can choose to participate in engagement or well-being initiatives but comp and performance are mandatory. So for me, they're the biggest shouts in the whole culture. So by changing those two elements, you can really shift cultures. And I'm really excited for what that will bring to the HR industry. I think it's a, a massively exciting journey to go on. So, yeah, so that's my next big. And it's a new role for me, too. I'm going to be there next year. I'm going to be their chief customer officer. So that's a whole new area to learn. And um, I'm really excited about it. Back to that message of relearning again. It's uh, it's another chapter in your career journey, Ashling. Before we finish, a couple of quick fire questions for you. Book you'd most recommend? Well, I think everybody should read Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset. It's a must-have. I think most people have seen it in some shape or form, but it's an incredible book. Yeah, it's a must-read. It's a must read and podcast if you listen to any that you'd recommend. Yeah, I listen to lots, actually. Um, I like Adam Grant's podcast. If I want to laugh out loud, it's my therapist ghost of me. <laughs> you definitely laugh at that one anyway. That's great fun. That's a light list. And I think we all need a bit of happiness yeah. and fun in our day. Best advice you were ever given in life? Um, trust your gut. Yeah, it's there for a reason. It carries experience and it knows more than you do. So trust it. And last one, if you to name one person that motivates and inspires you, who would that be and why? Do I have to know the person? No. Okay, then I'm a big fan of Serena Williams. I little obsessed. Watch every interview she's done. I just really admire. I think she's the most fantastic role model for women. I think her resilience, her toughness. And yet her softness at the same time and the way she shows vulnerability is just inspiring. I remember I was walking in to AXA uh, to sell into them and she was there, carbon copy, because she's their brand ambassador in reception. And I was like, oh, God, I got this. <laughs> and was, Serena was there to guide me and, and we did indeed get it and it was just a great moment she's just my inspiration I think she's fantastic well I think you've been an inspiration for lots of people on the podcast today Ashling. I think you've demonstrated both vulnerability and resilience in speaking about your career and life journey and I wish you loads of success in the future and thanks for being on the podcast Ashling. thanks John my pleasure Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.